Genesis 22, 13 and 14. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Everyone say instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Father, would you speak to us? Let your word be engrafted into our hearts. Let it take root. Let it bear the fruit that this particular word is designed to cause to be born in our lives. And let that fruit come to maturation. That is the fruit of trust. We want to know who you are and trust you. In a way that we have not before this service began. We want to hear how to do that. And so would you speak to us now. In Jesus name we ask. And everybody shouted and said amen. Amen. The God of more than enough. Not just enough. The God of more than enough. What I'm suggesting to you. Is that God doesn't peek out. He doesn't reach a point beyond which he says well. (laughs) That's it. If I didn't do it, I'm out of resources now. Can't help you. I did everything I could. That didn't fix it. You're going to find somebody else. You will never hear God say that ever. It simply says that Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And that is the covenant name Jehovah Jireh that you've heard. There's a very popular song out right now on Jireh, about Jireh. That's the title of the song. That's one of the covenant names of God. The Lord will provide. It doesn't say provide up to a point. It says he will provide. Bottom line, whatever the need is, he will provide it. That's who he is. Years ago, God gave me a life-changing revelation when I was studying this very story of Abraham offering up Isaac on Mount Moriah. And it completely changed my relationship with him. You ever had one of those kind of moments, those kind of encounters with God and his word as you studied or as you prayed and something flipped on a switch and things could not go back to being the same ever again. It was a game changer for me. It changed everything about my relationship with God. It really is true that a single thought can change your life. That's right. And that is because the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your thinking. Change the way you think, you can change the way you live. It will change your life. And the revelation that God spoke to me was a very simple one, while at the same time it was very profound. You know what I'm talking about? God can speak to you, and it's the most simple truth, and yet it can be stunningly profound. And it was simply this. After we are born again, not before, but after we are born again, how we see ourselves in our relationship to God will determine how we see him. That's very simple, but at the same time, very complex. How we see ourselves in our relationship with God will determine how we see him. Now, what do I mean by that? People see God in all kinds of ways. And that's because they see themselves in all kinds of ways in terms of their relationship 
to him. They see themselves as sinners and he's a holy, righteous God. They see themselves as deserving of punishment and he's the judge. They see themselves as agnostics and he's the vague God that they can't quite see materialize in their thought processes. They see themselves as unbelievers. They see him as a big question mark. They see themselves as servants. They see him as master. They see themselves as children. They see him as father. If any of those statements described you, the latter part of that statement described the way you see him. That is to say, you're not going to see him as a, at yourself as a horrible sinner and see him as your heavenly father. Just not going to work out like that. You would think that we would all see God in the same way, right? It's kind of like raising kids. I was talking to Dr. Neal in the office just a moment before this service started. And it really is true that you can raise a dozen kids in a home and every one of them turn out differently. And they ate the same food, (laughs) had the same mom and dad, you know, lived in the same house. Heard the same thing said, watched the same TV programs, and it all turned out different. In the same way, we can all come to the same church service, hear the same sermon, sing the same worship songs that were sung a while ago, and all have a different idea who God is. Kind of like the word vehicle, right? The car you drove up in, or the truck, whichever it may be. If I say vehicle, immediately something's going to pop into your mind because we don't think in abstract terms of V E H I C L E. We don't think like that. You and I think in terms of word pictures. We're, we're created by God to think that way. If I say the word car, you see one in your mind. And so some of you saw a Ford when I said vehicle. Some of you saw a Chevrolet. Anybody see a Chevrolet? Let's uh, raise your hand. Anybody here? Yeah, some of you did. Oh, I know the rest of you, to use Wayne Francis's word, you're too bougie. You saw BMW, right? <laughs> Amen. Okay. Yeah. And some of you saw more than a BMW. Some of you saw a black BMW. And some of you saw a BMW with, that was black with gray leather upholstery. You, you, you saw that. Some of you will see a pickup truck. It all depends upon what matters to you, your interests, what your dreams are, your experiences in life. And perhaps the most important question that will ever be asked in all the history of Christianity is this question, how do we see God? Because I can promise you, there are a lot of different answers to that question in this room. Do you see him only as God? You know, the big fellow upstairs reclining on a cloud with a long gray beard, has angels playing harps all around him. Is that how you see God? I doubt it. Nobody really sees God that way. Do you see him as your master? You see him as your judge that you'll someday stand in front of? Well, I can tell you if you will tell me how you see God, how you see yourself. It's true. Most of us have kind of a one-dimensional view of God, unfortunately. And it is affected by our experience. And it's affected by the way we look at this guy right here. And so how we see him 
affects our relationship with him in the long haul. And let me explain. Abraham was called by God to offer on Mount Moriah his son. And then God was very specific. He said, your only son, Isaac. And so they took some servants with them. They, with them, they traveled for three days. They came to Mount Moriah. And then Abraham does this. He turns to the servants and says, you stay here. The lad and I, the son and I are going to go yonder and we're going to worship. And so the first level of relationship is servanthood. Notice how high up the mountain servants go. They don't go very high at all. They have to stay at the bottom of the mountain. And when you see yourself only as a servant, you don't climb real high in terms of your relationship with God. You don't get to see the view that other people see. And understand, I'm not opposed to servanthood. We should all have a servant's heart and want to work for God. But if that's all you see yourself as, is a servant, you see him as that master that sits on the top of that mountain and ooh, better not do anything to make him upset and better do your job right. And don't you punch out early either. Amen. There are heights in God that God wants all of us to go to. And he wants to grow our prayer life, our worship experience, our intimacy with him, our faith in him. But to be honest, to be able to get beyond where you are right now, you might have to transition from being a servant to becoming something else so you can see him differently while still keeping the heart and the attitude of a servant. And the second level is friendship. Because notice who did climb the mountain. Abraham, who was he? He's the guy the Bible called the friend of God. And then I had you speak it out loud yourself, read it from the screen. He brought Isaac, who was the son in this story. And so you have friends and you have a son that is climbing the mountain. A friend and a son. And so the second level of relationship with God is friendship. Abraham was on friendly terms with God. He was in fellowship with God. And notice that friends go higher up the mountain than just servants go. But the third level is sonship. Isaac was a son and he represents what sonship sonship will give you access to. That's the highest level of relationship with God that we will address in this passage of scripture today. Amen. And it's much higher than the relationship of being a servant. Or the relationship of being a friend. You see, because friends are valued higher than servants are valued, right? Amen. You may love your servant if you have one. I've never lived in a home where we had servants. But in case, you know, let's, let's translate that into maybe modern parlance or, or vernacular and say it's a coworker, Somebody works for you. You're a boss on a job. Well, you may love the people you work with. Because you get to know them year in, year out, and your lives become intertwined, and you spend a lot of your time pursuing the same objectives. Some of them you may be, you don't tell anybody, you might not be able to stand them. Amen. And that's okay, got that. But some of them you become really close to. But I can tell you right now, you know who you love more than them? Your friends. You might be friendly with the folk on the job. But you love your friends. And then 
There's a level beyond that, and that's your children. You don't love your friends as much as you love your kids. You'll lay down your life for a good friend. But you won't even hesitate or think twice about it if it comes to your children. Because there is a covenant that exists between parents and their children that doesn't exist between friends. There's a a covenantal relationship that exists between friends. And you're even in a covenant of sorts on your job. Because you're contracted to do a certain amount of work and perform certain tasks for a certain amount of money. That's a contract. It's a covenant. And we don't look at things like that anymore. We don't, we don't think in terms of covenants. And we really should. But I can promise you, the level of covenanthood that exists between a parent and a child is much higher than what exists between friends or between co-workers. And listen to who God said we are. In 1 John 3 verses 1 through 2. Behold what manner of love the father. Who? The friend? The co-worker? No, the father. Has bestowed on us. And notice what he's talking about. He's talking about love. The quality of love. Who gets the love? Who gets the highest measure Who is the love given to without hesitation? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. God reserves the highest measure of love that He possesses for His children. And then verse 2. Beloved, now. Everybody say now. Right now. Won't you get that? In fact, let's say it all together. Right now. Not after a while. Not in, you know, the sweet by and by when you're walking streets of gold. But right now. We are the children of God. And it has not yet been been revealed what we shall be. Now what strikes me about this passage is John felt compelled to tell these early believers that God loves you as your father and look at the love he's bestowed upon you. And then to underscore that point by saying, guys, hey, I'm not talking about he's going to love you later. I want you to know that right now you're the sons of God. You know what? I think we still struggle with that in the church today. I think we got the friends thing down. I think we got the servants thing down. But I'm not sure that we always understand sonship. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everybody always says, that's rapture, man. That's when Christ comes back. Maybe. But maybe not. Maybe what it's really saying is when you really see him as your father. That's when the qualities of God begin to be reproduced in you. Sonship. You see, fathers love sons and daughters more than they love other relationships. A master may love his servant and a friend obviously cares for his friends. But sons and daughters, they have access to a measure or degree of love. That doesn't exist in the other relationships. A a servant works for the father. A friend enjoys being in fellowship with the father. 
But a son has the heart of his father. He owns his daddy's heart. Yeah. And let me tell you why this is so important. It's because part of the covenant of a father-son relationship is that sons receive their father's estate as an inheritance. Servants don't. Friends don't. Only your children. Whoa, now I want you to stop and think about that. Because I'm talking about covenants of provision. Servants don't typically inherit the estate of their master. The children do. And friends typically do not inherit the estate of a master or their friend. The children do. And so if you only see yourself as a servant to God, what is that doing in terms of what you're walking in, the inheritance the Father has for you? What's that doing in terms of your inheritance if you only see yourself as the friend of God? But if you see yourself as a son or a daughter of God. You begin to see God as your heavenly father, one who is always there for you and has who has made you heir of all things through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Somebody shout and say amen. amen. Now this is really important because I'm convinced and I've got a lot of years as a pastor behind me and in ministry that make me feel this way. I'm convinced you can know God as your savior and not know him as your father. Think about that. I'm not talking about your salvation being at state or in risk. No, you're, you're saved on your way to heaven. It's just you're going to have to be introduced to him when you get up there. Because you thought he was one thing. And he's something else. He's your heavenly father. And when you study the ministry of Jesus, you will find that that Jesus was always trying to reveal the father to everybody around him. He wanted humanity to know the heart of the father God. Amen. Listen to what he said. John 14 verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also, Jesus said. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. If you're watching me, you got your eyes fixed on me. I'm showing you who the father is. That's my whole ministry. That's my purpose. That's my mission. So Philip said to him in verse 8, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What do you think I've been doing for the last three years? I've been trying to introduce you to the Father heart of God. So how can you say, show us the Father? And you've been with me these last three years and you don't get it yet. Jesus was constantly trying to reveal to people around him that God was more than this stern Old Testament figure with his arms crossed, waiting to zap you if you got out of line. He wasn't a policeman hiding behind the billboards on the highway of life, ready to catch you rolling dirty. He was your father. 
is con- constantly trying to help people see that. When you look at Luke 15, it's astonishing. You're familiar with the, the, the passage that I'm going to go to. Chapter 15, I can pretty much talk from it because everybody knows it. It contains the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost or the prodigal son. You, you know it. And what many people don't realize is that chapter 15 of the gospel of St. Luke actually introduces us to three parables that describe the three conditions or dimensions of lostness. This is what it's like for you to be lost. They tell us what it means to be away from God. The lost sheep that strayed away. Jesus said, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, will a man not leave the 90 and nine in the wilderness and go seek after the one until he has found it. That's That's what Jesus said. That one lost sheep. Now, what does that represent? Well, there were wolves. There were bears, there were lions that existed back in that day in the Middle East. And so the lost sheep was in constant peril. And that describes the first condition of lostness. And usually just about the only one you hear most folk talk about. You're in eternal danger if you're lost. You're lost because Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's setting a trap for you right now. You're going to spend eternity without God. That's the dimension of lostness that the lost sheep describes. The lost coin speaks to yet another dimension of lostness. You may say, I thought being lost was lost. No, there's more to it than that. That lost coin was part of the dowry. I could go into detail, but in the culture customs of the day, they would wear their coins sewn into a veil. And then when the woman got married, that was her dowry. One of the coins had fallen in the house. Now, let me tell you about the house. Because there again, like the word vehicle, it brings to mind whatever you're familiar with. And so house, I mentioned the term, you're thinking house like one you live in, right? It wasn't like that at all. Most houses back in the day did not have a floor like this. Wasn't tile, wasn't carpet, wasn't hardwood. It was dirt. And you know what they would do? They would take the chaff from the winnowing of the wheat and the barley and they would scatter it on the floor and they would create a cushion and that would be their floor so they didn't have to walk on dirt. And what would happen after you walked on that for a while? It'd get crushed and broken and matted. And so what they would do is they would bring some more chaff in and over the years that built up and that was a pretty thick floor. And so one of the coins fell into that mess and was lost. Now, what does that speak to? Well, a coin was made to be spent. It was made for a purpose. They didn't just produce a coin so you could put it on the shelf. It looked nice and pretty. No, it had a specific purpose. It was meant to be used for something. It would achieve something. And that speaks to the second dimension of lostness, which is lost to your destiny and purpose. When you're out of Christ and not living as you should, you're not fulfilling the reason for which God brought you into the world. And this is one of the biggest problems that exist in our world right now. My time is racing. I've got to go through this quickly. That's why I hate the teaching of evolution so much. You have this soaring rates of suicide. Well, what do you expect? You tell somebody, you don't matter. You know, you just, we're an accident. 
lightning struck a pool of chemicals and here you are. No, uh uh-uh, don't tell a kid that. Not in their teenage years when they're struggling to gain an identity and looking for somebody to mirror worth back to them. You just told that kid, he doesn't matter. And so it's terrible what they do. And I thank God for our wonderful teachers who are here who try to go beyond that and tell them you were created by God and you have value. Amen. God bless every one of you that are doing that. Amen. But the third condition of lostness is the lost son. And so the first was lost and in danger. The second was lost to purpose. The third is lost to relationship with the father. Now let me ask you, which one of those do you think is the worst? The third condition is the worst. Lost without relationship with God. You have a hole that big inside. They can drive a Mack truck through it. And you're trying to fill it up with all the wrong stuff. And never will be fulfilled if you're out of relationship with God. But you see, that's not all that that chapter tells us about. It, It doesn't just teach us about the three dimensions of lostness. No, what it really shows us, and this is what everybody misses when they read this. It shows us how much the Father loves us. Because each of those stories tell the extraordinary links. That God will go to to reach us in that condition. The lost sheep, he leaves the 90 and 9 until he finds the one that's lost. Is there anybody in this building that you're glad God went looking for you until he found you? Oh, come on. Somebody give God some praise in this house. Until he found you. Lost to destiny. The the scripture says the woman had to light a lamp, get out on her hands and knees and go through that matted straw that was on the floor until she found the coin. God doesn't give up on your lost destiny. Some of you right now, you're so far from the middle of what God wants you to be doing. It's not even funny. And others of you are right smack dab in the middle of the will of God and you're as happy as, as you could possibly be. I want you to think about those who are not. God wants to put you in the middle of your purpose. But the third dimension being lost to the love of the father. This kid packed up. And where did it all start? Where it always does. The wrong friends. And he ran out off with his friends into a far country. Messed up his life. Squandered his livelihood. And then he got to thinking that in my father's house there's abundance to such a degree listen to what he said when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair and yet i perish with hunger now i'm talking about covenants of provision the god of more than enough but i want to show you that until you understand fatherhood you're never going to be able to walk in the fullness of the provision that god has in store for your life and so this boy leaves And what does the father do? Everybody says, man, that sure was a good dad to let that boy come home after what he did. Any dad in this building will tell you that was easy. The hard part was letting him leave. Knowing he was going to mess up his life. Make a decision that would blow up his own future. But before anybody else saw him, the father looked down the road and saw the boy coming. 
You know what that means? It means he was watching the whole time. He never quit looking. God is still waiting for somebody in this building to come to him right now. And your mom and dad may have given up hope, but God never did give up hope. Hello, somebody. God still cares. God still loves. Oh, somebody in the building ought to give God a shout of praise. And here's an interesting little bit of information. The word prodigal means extravagantly wasteful. We call the son the prodigal son. It was really the prodigal father. Oh, I know. The prodigal son wasted the resources, but the prodigal father exhibited such lavish, extraordinary love for his son that it almost appears to be wasteful. Didn't we sing it a moment ago? Oh, the never-ending, reckless love of God. How it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 90 and 9. They didn't even know I was going to preach this message today. That shows you how God coordinates the things that go on in a service. God's talking to you. Amen. The young man realized that there's provisions to spare in my father's house. And sure enough, when he got home, they killed the fatted calf, gave him the golden ring, put the... The dad's best robe on the son. What this story does and the other parables in this same chapter is show us how committed God is to us. He doesn't just walk away. Doesn't quit. Now, let's translate that into our need. Because just like there are three dimensions of lostness, there were three levels of relationship with God. And so there are people all over this building that have never learned to trust God for their resources yet. Never learned. That the father's not about to let you go under. And you're fighting it as though it's you by yourself. And if I can say it like this, I one time had a dear friend whose son drowned. They were swimming in an in a excavation hole that had filled up with water. He had two sons and his son got in trouble. And the dad went to save him. And his son was struggling so badly that the dad told me with tears running down his face, he said, I had to let go of my son because I was about to die and we would have both died. There are people who fight the attempts of the father to rescue them. Rescue them from their thinking. Rescue them from their life. It's pulling them under. And God can't force you to see what you refuse or can't allow yourself to see. And this is what's really at risk here is that you will fail to understand who God actually is. You'll serve him your whole life. Praise God for that. Hallelujah. But never really know the father heart of God. And so every day is a struggle. You're struggling to get by, worried about the bills, worried about your finances. You can't tithe. Tithe? You kidding? I can't even make my ends, the ends meet right now. How am I going to tithe? I won't tell you why you can't because you've never seen him as your father committed to taking care of you. Once you resolve that, you can let go and say, hey, he's got it. God's got this. I can, I can do what he said. I can step out when the ice is thin. I can walk on this. God won't let me go under. And he won't. Look at what he said in Matthew six twenty six. Look at the birds of the air for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into borns. Yet your heavenly friend, master, 
No, your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? If you can ever figure out you're a son, you will understand he is a father. He's not going to turn his back on you. Give God some praise in this house. Oh, somebody ought to give God a hallelujah. I'm done. I'm done. So who is God to you? Is he the big man upstairs? Is he the boss? He's the judge. Sits on the great white throne. I I know that, that all of those things are elements of who he is. But you have to know who he is. And I want you to see that on Mount Moriah, he did not reveal himself as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who is more than enough, until they got up that mountain. Nowhere in the 22 chapters prior, that's in chapter 22, you read about it. But nowhere in the 21 previous chapters or the first part of chapter 22 did he reveal himself as Jehovah Jireh till they got up. That mountain, and that's why Abraham said, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Where is God's provision seen? Not at the base of the mountain, in the mount of the Lord where sons are at risk. He did not reveal himself as Jehovah Jireh until the son was in danger. When Isaac was about to lose his life, is whenever God stepped on the scene and declared his covenant name. I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm the God of more than enough. Leave the boy. Take care of the son. I'm committed to taking care of sons. So I'm done. How do you see? In this series, what I've hoped to do is show you that God is in covenant with you. And he's just not the quitting kind. He won't turn around. He won't walk away. He won't leave you. And some of you are standing on tiptoes trying to please a God that you think is a judge and can't ever be satisfied. Others of you live your life alienated because you know you're less than perfect. I got that. I got that. I'm less than perfect. But I want you to understand who he is. Because if you ever know who he is, you you will see he loves you anyway. He is your heavenly father. And so what does being in covenant with God mean? It means trusting him. Trusting him to keep his side of the covenant. While we keep ours. Speaking of tithing, that's all he asked. Did you know Malachi, the whole book, only four chapters long, is all about covenants. First chapter, God says, where's my honor? I'm a covenant, in covenant with you. I've been a father to Israel, yet you don't even honor me. Chapter two, where is your honor for the woman you're in covenant with? You violated that covenant relationship. And that's why you're cursed, God is explaining. Chapter three talks about the covenant of giving. Give The tithe and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing you can't receive. Chapter 4, he said, in the last days, covenantal thinking will be restored and the hearts of fathers will be turned to sons and vice versa. Lest I come smite the earth with a curse. What is he saying? 
that if there is no covenant, there's nothing to keep back the curse. God, change the way we see you. Help us to see you as our heavenly father. I won't tell you that little simple revolution, revelation revolutionized my life and changed my life. Would you stand with me right now?